everyone. My name is Brian Sikora. I work for ODR. I'm a program specialist, uh, ACSW, social worker. Um, part of my job is to uh, coordinate all the FSP referrals and have conversations with FSP providers and also facilitate communication between uh, our DHS team and the DMH teams in the form of FSP providers. Um, I'm here with Tedman Chung, who will be on shortly uh, after I give an overview of ODR. He's a clinical advisor for one of our ICMS providers, Amity Foundation. Um, he's going to uh, provide information about uh, specifically working with ODR and what that, what that involves. Um, we start with a video here, just to kind of get you guys in the mood. This is a video that was made about ODR. Um, I assume some of you here are, uh, are have experience with ODR. I see some names and faces here, so hello, everyone. Um, so none of this will be a surprise to some of you, but it'll, it'll be um, uh, possibly an education about our program to others. So. You don't know what's going to happen out here in these streets. You know, it's survival out here. I was originally from Texas. My goal was to hopefully go to school, but I got robbed in L.A. and I ended up on the street. I didn't have the money or the friends out here really to help me out with that problem. I used to get bullied a lot and, you know, I really wanted to fit in. That was the beginning of me drinking and then using. I eventually got diagnosed with mental health disorder, uh, bipolar. I'm suffering through abuse and don't even know what abuse is. I never knew what abuse was. You know, when, when a person says, hey, you need to go through a mental health, I knew then I, I had issues, big time. I've been diagnosed with a major depressive disorder, insomnia, and an anxiety disorder. Being homeless and having a mental health situation, it's like you're locked in a box. Being that way and being in that sort of quiet desperation of, you know, I need this medication, I do need help, and it being so hard to convey that to people. Unfortunately, here in Los Angeles County, there's an estimated 47,000 people who are living on the streets. When a police officer encounters, let's say, someone who is disturbing the peace, who has a mental illness, if they take them to jail, they can book them in 30 minutes and be on their way. It's a harsh thing to say, but jail has almost been like a second home. What typically happens with a person coming out of jail, then about 11 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock at night, they walk out of the jail. If you've been to the LA County Jail on Boucher Street, the only thing close by is Skid Row. Getting released and, and not having an opportunity to participate in treatment and the cycle kept continuing. This vicious cycle of a revolving door in and out of our institutions. There are a lot of people that we believe shouldn't be in jail. You see guys who really belong there, and then you see guys who, kind of like in my situation, stuck. It's unfair, it's unethical. There has to be a better approach. They have this new program called the ODR program. And I says, what is that? And it says, we think that if you had your own place, you won't be out doing crime. It says, have you ever had your own place? I says, no, never. It's surreal, you know, it's like, okay, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but it's real. There is a need for the continuum of services where a person who lives upstairs can come downstairs and receive mental health services. They get a caseworker that stays with them for life. I know no other program like that. Therapy is about second chances, right? And a lot of our guys 
are seeking that second chance. I've been able to experience and to grow and to get my life back. I mean, it's, it, it, it's unprecedented. I don't think we ever really understood just how many people inside the jail were eligible. Our study looked at the entire mental health population in the jail, which was over 5,000 people. Over half of them would potentially have successful cases. That's important because really what the community wants, they want safety. From a public safety perspective, it's actually safer to have them housed and emergency room visits are very expensive. Jail stays are very expensive, associated court costs, policing costs, arrest costs, we could go on and on. But if you just house somebody and you provide them with medication, it's actually affordable. That's rewarding. It's fulfilling. Why wouldn't we all want that? This is an innovative and intelligent approach. And it's working. So far, we've safely diverted almost 2,000 people through the Office of Diversion Reentry. And this is spreading around the country. These needs are in Chicago, they're in New York, they're in Miami, they're all over. I think it should be important for all of us to want everyone in society to the degree that they're capable of living a life with dignity and purpose. It's really about righting some wrongs in the criminal justice system that have been going on for far too long. Well, I remember, I, I almost laughed. When, when I got offered the program, I was like, is this for real? You're going to get me a housing and medical and all that? And they're like, yeah, and you can get started all over again. It was jaw-dropping. I says, don't play with me. When I get in trouble, I go to prison. They schedule me for release. And they pick me up. I still didn't believe it. I, I says, I'm not, they're not going to release me, you know. And they came and, and, and they said, Baker, for release. And, They never happened to me. In terms of jail population uh, that we like to talk about, so um, as of about what eight days ago, the jail population, total jail population in LA County, which is um, the largest jail counties, county jail system in the world, um, was at just under 12,000. Um, of those, about 4,500 were in mental health housing. Um, just for a bit of context, um, pre-corona times, as about two months ago, jail population was actually at 17,000. So you'll see they've done um, a pretty massive release effort, um, less so in the mental health population. So the population for mental health went down from 5,800 to 4,500. Um, yeah, so it just talks a little bit about the, the problem. Uh, so Office of Diversion and Reentry was created in 2015 by the LA County Board of Supervisors. Um, mission was to develop and implement countywide criminal justice diversion for persons with mental and or substance use disorders to provide reentry support services based on individuals' needs and to reduce youth involvement with the justice system. Um, today, we're talking about one specific uh, ODR program called ODR Housing. Um, but what you see here is, uh, 
we have a number of programs that we work on. Um, some of these may also be familiar to you. Um, so we're, we're talking about ODR housing today, which is our largest program uh, where we uh, um, uh, divert people's cases from, the, from uh, divert people's cases from their, their criminal fel felony criminal case into our program. Uh, we, uh, as of February 2002, 2020, sorry, uh, we had released about 2,400 people. That number has obviously gone up and will continue to go up. Um, currently active, we have about 1,600 uh, and about almost 500 who are in permanent supportive housing. Um, we also have the MIST program, which is the Misdemeanor Incompetent to Stand Trial, FIST program, which is Felony Incompetent to Stand Trial. We have another effort to uh, identify pregnant, pregnant women coming into uh, the LA County Jail um, and divert their cases so they don't um, have to remain pregnant in jail. Um, and our newer program, the Department of State Hospitals Diversion Program, where we're diverting. Uh, so when it's the True Diversion Program um, under the law PC 1001.36, where uh, someone co successfully completes after two years, their uh, felony is, is removed from their record. Uh, but again, today we're talking about one-year housing. Um, these are just some of our partners. We work really closely with, um, uh, obviously, DMH in the center there, because uh, you know we DMH is the one that provides the, the core mental health uh, treatment to our clients. Uh, we also work closely with district attorney, the courts, public defender, probation department is pretty key, uh, and the sheriff, um, and a number of community partners, which I will talk about right now. Um, we, so we work with ICMS providers. We have seven of them. Uh, these names should be pretty familiar to some of you. Uh, we work with Alcott Center, Amity Foundation. Uh, Tedman is here from Amity Foundation today. Uh, People Concerned, Project 180, St. Joseph Center, Telecare, and Volunteers of America. Uh, we also have uh, separate housing providers that run the houses that we, uh, the interim houses that, that our clients reside in. And of course, DMH and FSP providers. Uh, um, just wanted to give a quick uh, overview of the process of how we get people into the program and kind of what we do, because I think it'll, um, it'll help understand, uh, you know, why we're doing certain things and, and some of the stuff that Tedman's going to talk about. So first step is obviously someone gets referred to ODR. This generally comes from attorneys. Um, we, we do occasionally get referrals from other sources, but everything really has to go through attorneys because they're, they're the ones that will uh, fully understand the client's uh, legal position. Um, to be eligible for ODR, you have to be obviously incarcerated in the LA County jail system um, with an open and active felony. Uh, and you have to be experienced homelessness and have a uh, serious mental disorder. Um, we do have, uh, so, so it's a court-ordered program, so we, we work with uh, three dedicated ODR courtrooms, uh, one at downtown CCB, one at LAX Airport Courthouse, and our newest one in Van Nuys. All these three courthouses serve all LA County courthouses across the system, except for Antelope Valley, where we have our own kind of uh, one-off uh, referral uh, process. Uh, once the uh, once the case is accepted to be considered for ODR, it gets sent to the one of those ODR court court rooms where we have dedicated ODR court judges, um, who are some of the best judges you'll ever meet. Um, they determine suitability with input from the district attorney, probation, public defender, um, and they the you know they'll consider a criminal charge history, current criminal charge, and criminal hi criminal history, criminal charge history. Um, ODR doesn't necessarily get involved in the criminal piece of it, 
Um, we leave that up to the judge. We are the ones that provide clinical input and support. Um, if the judge agrees and if everyone's on board with it happening, they'll offer order a conditional release. Uh, we'll assign the client to ICMS, uh, how interim housing and submit an FSP referral when they are available. Uh, ICMS will go and see the, the client in jail. Um, it's important to note that uh, ODR is in court for all, every single court date meets with all, all clients. Occasionally, uh, clients will come into court not stable, not being treated appropriately in jail. Uh, occasionally, we'll take over the treatment of them through our ODR psychiatrists uh, to stabilize them and make sure that they're, they're doing okay before they can be conditionally released. And we'll, and we'll follow them and continue treating them throughout um, their incarceration until they're released. Um, and that is important because Tedman's gonna talk a little bit about um, when a judge takes into consideration the med regimen, uh, specifically usually injections, uh, in, in a conditional release and making it a condition of the conditional release that they remain on certain medications or an injection. Uh, so Tedman will talk a little bit about that. Um, so the client will be released from jail, ICMS will pick them up, and be they'll be brought to interim supportive housing. Um, throughout the person's involvement in ODR, uh, they will be on proba formal probation. It's generally about three years. Um, they'll have to go back for court progress reports monthly or bi-monthly or tri-monthly. Uh, and ultimately, we're going to get them into permanent housing when they're ready to move. Uh, that, and that'll either be through scattered site housing or uh, kind of our newer project-based supportive housing units we're creating. Uh, ultimately, once probation is finished, the court requirements go away, but uh, client remains in housing and with connected to ICMS permanently. Uh, and here's a couple, here's a picture that we like to show on the left side, you see that's a, a high observation unit. A number of those people are in suicide gowns. Uh, so they're obviously chained to the table most of the day. Uh, and on the right, that shows one of our, it's actually one of our missed houses, but it gives you a sense of, you know, what we're trying to do. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Tedman, who will take my place right now. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Tedman Chung. I'm the clinical advisor uh, at Amity Foundation, the um, clinician that has helped take care and coordinate some of our mental health services um, and at Amity with um, ODR. So what my part of the presentation is, I'm going to go over some how the ODR um, providers help carry out some of the treatment uh, services as um, you know, ordered by the court and for the client's participation in the ODR program. So prior to FSP enrollment, um, what happens is a lot of our clients, um, we, we pick them up from jail, we connect them with housing, we connect them with benefits and all these services. Uh, however, the FSP enrollment and the referral can take a little bit of time to uh, be linked, usually about a month or two, uh, depending on how open some of the slots are. So prior to the FSP enrollments, what the ICMS providers like Amity are doing is we're really coordinating with key stakeholders um, out in the community. So we're connecting with housing, um, we're connecting with probation, with court, with family, and other collateral contacts that they might have. Um, during this time as well, um, they are also seeing our own psychiatrists, our own in-house psychiatrists, um, for as a stopgap basically until the FSP referral is made or linked. So during this time, they're seeing our psychiatrists for any type of medication adjustments, any uh, medication refills, um, consultation with our psychiatrists until 
an appointment with the FSP psychiatrist um, can be made. And this is a nice um, graph that um, ODR and Brian was able to, to, to make. Um, really kind of really encompasses how we uh, provide services to a lot of our clients. And basically, we have all these different um, agencies that are surrounding our client. And we're right there with the client next to them. So a lot of people that can be agencies that can be involved are like, like we said before, the PCP, the mental health provider, which is a huge partner in providing services uh, to our clients. Um, the housing case manager as well. So they'd be the case manager at the actual housing uh, site that they're at. Of course, probation, working with the judge and the court and the public defenders, working with the family, and as well as working with the sponsors, um, drug sponsors or drug treatment program case managers if they have that. So what we like to do is whenever there's an issue or a crisis or an update that needs to be made, we, our job really is to link all those different services together to connect them to create this giant web and support network for our clients in case of, to provide them as much support as possible for, so that they can be successful in the ODR program. So that's really what our, our job is really about. So um, once the FSP referral has actually been made and we know who it is, then what, um, what we like to do is we like to um, uh, make it a initial FSP slash ICMS joint meeting. So during this time, we like to get the client there as well with the FSP providers there, we're there, and there's a lot of exchange of uh, contact information. We have a um, client contact sheet that we like to fill out that states who the probation officer is, who the, the uh, physician is, who the psychiatrist is, which pharmacy they like to use, and we, we hand that out to everybody. We hand it out to housing case manager, to family, to the FSP, so that they know exactly who to contact uh, for whatever services that the client may need or if there's like some type of emergency. So there's that exchange of contact information and um, you know who the DPO is, who the probation officer is and so forth. There's an exchange of what the current medication list is like. When the clients get out of jail, they're prescribed one certain type of, of uh, you know medication, have a medication profile and things like that. But however, during those months or two that they're seeing our psychiatrists, um, so, you know, some of those medications that might have changed, you know, the might have been added on, some doses might have changed. So we like to also give the FSP providers what the current list of medications are, as well as some type of medical profile that kind of states what their, uh, maybe their psych history is like, if they have any type of medical issues. Uh, we do have a lot of uh, clients that have, you know, diabetes and other, you know, um, heart issues. So we include the psych and non-psych medication list. We also include the current pharmacy as well, so they did, so that the FSP provider can know which pharmacy has already kind of uh, checked out, has already the client's information, where to deliver the medications to, and things like that. We keep also keep track of um, injection dates um, as well, because as you, as FSP providers, you guys know how important the injection dates are, because we don't want to miss any uh, injection dates. And as as I mentioned before, we provide some type of psych history that we get from um, ODR that includes um, you know, former hospitalizations, IS, um, IS numbers, uh, any suicidal ideations, or any other kind of red flags that they might need to, to be aware about, that the FSP provider might need to um, aware about. And then part of that initial joint meeting that's super important is we like to have, um, have a conversation of what some of the defined roles and shared responsibilities are. 
That way the client knows exactly who to contact, who to talk to whenever there's um, something, whenever they need something or if they need something to talk about a certain issue. So usually um, the FSP is the point person in regards to uh, any type of psych services, medication, psychotherapy. So the FSP provider is the point person. However, the ICMS is just the over, overall coordinator for all the services. So the ICMS provider is kind of like a, like a conductor, basically, to kind of link all those services and, and again, create that nice safety web uh, network for uh, some of our students. So um, again, during this joint meeting, we'd like, to have, we'd like to have that discussion about defined roles and shared responsibilities so that the client can also know uh, who, who to call when a certain situation pops up. Um, okay, so that's after our initial um, joint um, appointment. Now, um, in regards to ongoing kind of collaboration with our FSP providers. On the left side, I kind of put down what the ICMS providers are usually uh, kind of responsible for. On, on the right side, I put down what the FSP providers are usually kind of things that they kind of take care of. So, um, as our part of our ongoing collaboration with the FSP pro uh, providers, ICMS, we help with housing linkages. We work with Housing for Health and Building Corners in terms of housing referrals in case they need, um, and also depending on the appropriateness of uh, what housing locations or facility they might fit in. So for example, there's interim housing, there's uh, ERC, like a, like a boarding care, and then there's also permanent housing, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. But usually the ICMS providers will work with ODR and Housing for Health in terms of linking them to those different housing sites. Uh, we help establish the benefits right when they get out because once when they get out, we take them straight to DPSS so that we can reestablish their Medi-Cal, reestablish their SSI or GR so that they have income. And so, that, so for next month, their medications are covered by Medi-Cal. Uh, usually we're the point person um, and the liaison with court as well. So this encompasses talking with the public defender, um, talking with the judge, taking them to their uh, property support hearings because a lot of our, our clients, as part of their probation, the part of the participation in the ODR program is they have to go to uh, privacy court hearings um, in court. So we'll accompany, actually accompany them, stand in for them, we'll sit right next to them when they appear in front of the judge, um, and then we'll, we'll give our, uh, our privacy support to the judge to see how, um, how the client's been doing in the program. Um, if they need any type of substance abuse resources or linkages, that's something that we will also help out with as well. Um, you know, link them to any inpatient facilities, any groups, help them find a sponsor, things like that. Um, transportation, transportation is a huge um, deal with a lot of our clients. Uh, usually the ISS providers will provide transportation for non-psych appointments, non-psych things like taking them to their probation appointments, taking them to their court hearings, to their, to their PCP, and other things like that. Um, as I mentioned, for progress support uh, and court hearings, we take care of that as well. And for housing ready summary. Um, housing ready summary is, is something that we write up when we feel a client is ready to be permanently housed in their own apartment. Usually we like about two to three months of stability. I mean, that includes you know, um, not having any serious behavioral uh, incidences, um, being med compliant, uh, being active participant in the ODR program, you know, going to their groups and things like that. So once we see that someone is ready, to be permanently housed in their own apartment, we'll, we'll write a case summary for them and we'll submit it to, to ODR who gets the final say in terms of whether 
whether they feel that this person is ready to be, move on to their permanent housing in their own apartment. However, as part of the housing ready summary, we, um, there's a section for mental health. We always try to ask for the mental, for the FSP providers input in terms of whether they feel that they're ready for it to be permanent housed. Okay, so that's on the left side, that's what the ICMS providers like Amity does. On the right side, um, FSP providers, um, what, the things that we kind of really rely on FSP providers as ICMS providers do is um, psychotherapy, um, any type of psychiatrist appointments, uh, medication refills and adjustments. Uh, a lot of our uh, ODR clients are housed in housing sites that has a thing called MedCall. And MedCall will send out um, email reminders for refills. Uh, they also send out weekly medication compliance reports as well. And uh, what we'd like to do is include the FSP providers to those email chains so that they know when their client uh, needs a refill for a certain medication. And also they all will also be aware of Know, how well they've been doing in terms of their med compliance as well. So that's something we really also kind of rely on FSP to help out with is again in terms of the medication refills and adjustments. Um, any type of transportation for psych appointments, so that could be their psychiatrist appointments or psychotherapy appointments, things like that. Um, for psych codes, uh, we, um, we also kind of re rely on our um, FSP providers for that. But we actually have a really good example today was um, one of our clients in housing, um, was destroying property and things like that. And um, we called our FSP provider for that particular student to actually go out and assess the, cl the client to see if uh, they need, any, if the person needs to be placed on a hold or not. Um, so that's something, that, a service that we really rely on on, on the FSP. Um, med compliance issues, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, and for input for housing ready and progress, of course, we rely on the FSP providers for their input because um, you know, the judge wants to hear how the student is doing in housing with mental health, so any substance abuse stuff. So we also really rely on FSP providers for their input for that. Uh, please let me know if, if there's any questions. I know we have a monitor, so please let me know if, if you need me to stop and um, ask any questions. Okay, I'm gonna move on. Um, in terms of some of the shared responsibilities uh, between ICMS and FSP um, providers, um, some of the shared responsibilities is safety planning. So um, that's safety planning for, for people that we feel uh, might be at higher risk for any suicidal ideations, for homicidal ideations, for people that are gravely disabled. Um, so we, part of that safety planning, we like to get housing involved as the case managers. Of course, we like to get the client involved. You know, we let them know this is your safety plan in case you have feelings of suicidal ideation or you want to harm somebody. Want to get the family involved as well so that they can also help monitor and we get the probation um, involved. So safety planning and monitoring is a, is a big deal because we want to get as many people involved as possible to try to help monitor uh, the client in case anything comes up. Uh, transportation, as I mentioned before, is a huge deal uh, with our services because a lot of our clients have uh, you know, really important appointments that they need to make. Um, as I mentioned before, our SAMS providers, we provide transportation for some non-psych appointments FSP providers usually take care of those psych um, transportations. However, um, you know, as a shared responsibility, we really, the, each provider really is a backup for the other. Okay, and something an FSP provider can't provide transportation. We'll go ahead and do it then. Okay. Um, in terms of medication compliance, um, that is something that we also kind of um, shared responsibility that we also help out with as well. Um, we help identify any type of uh, 
barriers or challenges that might come up with the client in terms of taking their medications. Like for example, if a, a client's not taking their, their nighttime medications because they forget. Um, so we might work with the FSP psychiatrist and the clinician in terms of, hey, can we change the timing in which this person takes uh, their medication? What we also help out with is um, as a backup is for refills. So for example, if, if a FSP um, can't refill that client's medications for that month for whatever reasons, say for example, if uh, their psychiatrist appointment is completely full, you know, we can go ahead and schedule um, an appointment to see our psychiatrist instead to get those refills. Or we can take them to um, La Casa or things like for Exodus in terms of emergency medication refills. So that's something that we also help out with as well. Um, crisis interventions, um, ICMS providers, we, um, at least with Amity, we are on call. So um, we also help out in terms of you know, monitoring if any on-call interventions needs to be done um, during off office hours. Um, medications um, is a huge, obviously a huge deal with a lot of our um, clients, initial clients. I want to say the majority of our clients are diagnosed um, with a mental health diagnosis. And as I mentioned before, our, our own psychiatrist at Amity is as, just as a stopgap in terms of medication refills, adjustments until the FSP um, referral is linked. The FSP, however, is the point person for medication refills after that FSP referral has been made. Okay, as I mentioned before, we are the backup for any type of medication refills. So uh, FSP providers um, are free to kind of use our um, psychiatrists as a backup, and we can also take them to La Casa or Exodus if necessary. In terms of medication changes, I think this is one of the most important uh, collaboration efforts that we try to really work with FSP providers, as well as with housing case managers as well. Whenever there's a medications um, change, that's involved with the client, we like to let everybody know, okay? Because um, we have so many different people involved with medications. We got housing case managers, we got the PCP, we got the FSB psychiatrists, and sometimes we have our own psychiatrists as well. And we got hospitals, you know, things, uh, things as that as well. So whenever there's a medication change, we like to let everyone know. There's a lot of forms that, um, that our own psychiatrists can fill out that's called medication change forms so that Everyone's alerted, hey, this dose was changed, this, this medication was added, this medication was taken off. Um, so that everyone knows so that just in case um, a client is not given an incorrect medication or a medication refill wasn't made because um, a housing staff wasn't aware that a medication was added. Okay. Um, sometimes our clients will move from, um, from facility to facility. So as part of that, um, when they are discharged from the housing facility, a medication um, form is also, discharge medication form is also made so that that new housing facility can know what the current medications are for that client. Okay, so that's something that's super important that we also like to kind of take care of, make sure that we don't miss out on anything. Um, medications injections, as um, Brian mentioned before, um, some of our ODR clients are on injections. And so we like to collaborate with FSP providers and with housing staff on some of the administration of those injections. Um, because sometimes the, the, the injections will be at the housing, but no, but we don't, no one knows who's actually administering the injections. Good thing is that we have a lot of options here, okay? Um, a lot of these housing sites do have their own LVN that can administer their own injection. Um, 
sometimes we rely on FSB providers who might have a nurse who's able to do the injection. Uh, different pharmacies also have mobile injection uh, sites now. Uh, we usually work with um, Alpha and uh, Mercy Pharmacy, and they both have nurses that can go out and actually do the injections. And as a backup to the backup to the backup, um, some of our, uh, we can also rely on the actual ODR nurses as well who, who will come out and do the injections. Um, as um, Brian mentioned, some of our clients are, um, you know, um, ordered to take certain injections. So um, with consultations with FSP psychiatrists, um, and this has happened a few times before where uh, a uh, FSP psychiatrist might feel that the, um, that the client no longer needs injection for whatever reasons. Um, the, the thing that we really like to ask for the FSP providers and, and the FSP psychiatrists is to really consult with ODR and ICMS about that um, just first before uh, discontinuing it because um, when, they, when they're in jail, a lot of the psych uh, jail team really worked you know, um, really hard and once at a time to get a lot of our uh, guys on injection. So we just ask that the FSP psychiatrist kind of consult with ODR and ICMS on, on that before actually discontinuing the, the injection. That's something we can help provide that linkage to. Um, Vivitrol um, is also a really important um, medication that's often used by a lot of our students. So we also will request for that uh, when appropriate, you know, to help them with cravings and, and things like that. At Amity, um, um, we have our own injection tracking sheet as well. We keep track of all the injections for our, all, of, all of our clients. So this what this what helps um, the jail psychiatrist know is if a student if a client gets rearrested, we we have a tracking sheet that we can alert the ODR psychiatrist so that they know when the last injection and dose was done for each of for that particular client. There's a lot of situational incidences that might happen. Um, some of our clients uh, do get rearrested um, from time to time. So uh, once they do get rearrested, um, the ICMS will alert the FSP to let them know when the reinstatement date might be so that the FSP providers can determine whether they need to close out you know, uh, um, the case on their end or not. Whenever a client goes AWOL, um, we like we on, on ICMS side, we will search, try to search for the client, try to make contact with them by making, we'll call, call their collateral contacts, we'll do a, a hospital search, we'll search on the LA uh, Sheriff's uh, department website to try to see if they got rearrested and you know unfortunately we'll have to search sometimes for the coroner's office as well but we usually be asked the FSP providers if they can also help us try to locate the client as well if they do go AWOL. Um, whenever a client goes um, gets hospitalized uh, what we on our side for the ICMS providers like to do is coordinate make contact immediately with the hospital discharge workers let them know that this particular person is a ODR client um, and then we also alert the FSP providers that, hey, we found out that you know, this person got 5150 or hospitalized for non-psych reasons. Uh, for the hospitals, we provide the current medication list so that the hospitals knows what they're working with, what medications the client should be on. And we also let them know what the psych history is as well. And then we, as a team with FSP provider and ICMS providers, we work with the hospital discharge workers and assisting with some of the discharge planning. Um, you know, if they can go back to their ODR housing sites or not. Um, some barriers to success um, um, with working with um, FSP providers with that collaboration effort between FSP and, and ICMS. So um, some barriers to success is undefined roles. You know, um, 
a unsuccessful agency collaboration will affect a client's success in the ODR program. Um, so and a lot of a lot of times when we don't have a defined role of what the FSP providers are kind of responsible for, what the ICMS providers are responsible for, uh, what happens what is that services are not done for that client. You know, some things might get dropped. You know, uh, medications might not get refilled. Uh, appointments not might not be done, or the client might not go to the appointment. So, again, it's really important during that initial uh, meeting to kind of really go over what some of the roles and responsibilities are for each different agencies. Other thing, other barriers to success is lack of communication, and this is in regards to any important updates, like if there's any incidences, like if a client got hospitalized or has some type of severe incidents at housing. Um, lack of communication in terms of medication changes or adjustments and also sharing of um, EWAS status and collateral contact as well. Um, also, um, lack of communication in terms of not knowing who the assigned worker is. You know, um, like for example, if an ICMS provider might not know who the assigned clinician or case manager is for the FSP provider and vice versa. Um, a common thing that also happens um, with our clients is sometimes they'll split, they'll try to split agencies. You know, they'll tell the FSP provider one thing an ICMS provider one thing, and PCP and probation officer uh, another thing. So um, that is something that can help cause also a lot of chaos in terms of that collaborative effort. So um, in, in order to, uh, to kind of address all these kind of barriers to success, some of the things that uh, we kind of really stress um, on is having individual client um, team meetings. Um, this is one of our kind of go-to interventions so that we can kind of develop a really good plan for this particular client. So an individual client's um, team meeting will include the housing staff, uh, the case manager, sometimes their LVN, will of course include the FSP providers, clinicians, uh, of course we'll be there, uh, sometimes we'll get the probation officer there, and of course we would like to have the client there. And then we'll, we, at that particular meeting, we can go over whatever issues that might be going on, if, um, if a client is splitting, then then all the providers can be on the same page in terms of what message that um, we're trying to, or what services we are trying to provide to the client. It's really important to have that kind of consistent, regular contact um, with, with, with that client's team for, for updates and coordination. And of course, if there's any particular issue, um, like with my client uh, this morning who was disruptive in housing, we'd like to develop a, an adventure plan. So that's what we did with our client this morning. Um, FSP went out, determined that they didn't meet eligibility for 5150. So um, we're having that client see our psychiatrist today at 1230. We invited the FSP provider to be part of that meeting um, so that the clinician could give insight to our own psychiatrist to, to determine whether any medication uh, changes need to be adjusted. After that, we are moving that client to a higher level of care to uh, go to like a psych group because um, that's what the whole team kind of decided that might be some of the best interventions done to kind of stabilize this client. Uh, what um, Amity also likes to do uh, is we like to have regular case conference meetings between each agency. So um, um, us ourselves, we've met before with uh, FSP agencies like SHAR, Access Recovery, Women's Reentry, um, and we would like to meet with them in person so that we can meet their staff, they can meet ours. We have to exchange that contact information, sharing our resources, We'll go over each individual client, maybe some of the higher risk clients so that we can talk about intervention plans, things that we got to look out for, red flags, sharing of collateral contact, all that good stuff. So we like to kind of have those regular case conferences every once in a while. And again, in, in, um, at Amity as well, 
for each of our FSP providers, I have a shared tracking sheet, a shared client tracking sheet. So um, we'll list all who the assigned Amity case managers are, and it will also list who the assigned FSP clinician and case managers are so that everyone involved knows who to contact in case of an emergency. So, Hi, I'm, I'm JT. Hi, everybody. I had, a, I had a couple questions. One question I had um, relates to medication because one thing that we have come up against, and, and I don't know if anybody else is encountering this, is some of the injections when we go to get them prescribed, like uh, Abilify, Medi-Cal, this is the first time I've run into it this year, has been denying um, some of the Abilify injections when they come out of jail. And so we've submitted tar paperwork. I've known this has happened once or twice, so I don't know if there's any assistance that we can get with streamlining that a little further, um, because we obviously want them to continue on the injections, but it's, this is something that's new to me, at least this year, that, it, that it's happened more than once. And I don't know if, if we're the only ones encountering this or if something else is going on. Injections always have been kind of an issue, right? Because we come out with these injections. And while in jail, a lot of the times the Medi-Cal is not active, okay? So immediately we have to kind of, kind of that's the very first thing we got to take care of. What we um, sometimes we like to do to give us an amount of time to get all that tar filled out is if we see that an injection is due um, soon when, when they're about to be released, we'll, we'll ask the jail psychiatrist if that injection can be administered a little bit early, you know? And then what we'll do is we'll work with the with the actual pharmacy and and to do the tar basically. Usually, if it's denied, because yes, JT, it has been happening a lot recently. We'll um, they'll send the tar back to us if it's denied, and they'll give us specific instructions on how that tar needs to be filled out so that it can get approved. And usually, we'll then we'll send that back to the jail psychiatrist. They'll they'll work with the pharmacy to make sure that 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 uh, language is done on that tar so that it can get approved quickly. But yeah, you're right. It has been a, a barrier that's been going on recently. And then, I, thanks Tim, I appreciate it. So I have a question too, because we had that happen and then the tar was filled out by our psychiatrist, sent back. Are we able then to coordinate with you to get additional help from the jail psychiatrist to uh, kind of back us up on that one? Absolutely, if if the injection was just was recently done, absolutely. Um, We've we've done that before with Alpha Pharmacy. They'll send it, the tar specifically to the jail psychiatrist, give them instructions on what actually needs to be filled out on that tar. The only other question I had too is: Is there a way to? Because um, I I would like to get the shared, uh, some of the shared uh, med sheets and shared information. I don't think we have as much access to that currently. And, yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing is uh, working with others, we want to kind of clarify certain roles with certain agencies because I know like we've had a specific client lately that there's been a lot of calls to go out and we've done evaluations for a whole. And it's not with Amity, it's with, it's with another agency, but then they, uh, it was three times in one week and, and we specifically let them know we've gone out, we've done the assessment and, and they're, they're not holdable. And then, it, what was frustrating is, is then they requested another assessment. And I said, it, it's been done now twice this week. And they went out independently and they said, we're going to do our own assessment. And my, my feeling was, why would you bring us in as the mental health providers? And they assessed and he wasn't holdable 
on their end too. Mm -hmm. And so just, I don't know how we can open up that communication with certain other agencies to kind of, you know, we're doing our job to the best of our ability too. And, um, you know, we, we do provide the assessment and that's about as far as I can go. But if, if they're not holdable, I can't hold them either. Right. Yeah. Uh, JT, I think in those, in those are good, uh, situations to reach out to me on, um, if there are concerns, you know, we, if we're, if we're not doing everything behind the scenes besides a hold or assessing for a hold to stabilize somebody or to address it, there's an issue. Um, so certainly reach out to me and I'll, and I'll take it up and, and figure out what it is we need to be doing rather than just having you guys go assess for holds three times in one week, you know? So Monique has a question about the age requirements. Um, there are no age requirements. Um, generally, all of our clients would be the, above the age of 18 because they'll be in, you know, um, I guess I guess you refer to it as adult court. Um, so there, so age requirements don't really apply. Whoever has an open felony with a divertible case that the judge or court feel comfortable diverting, uh, we will work with. And Latoya has a question between the different kind of support between FSP and RR or triple R, sorry, for collaborating with ODR? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the uh, the triple R is a, um, you know, I, I, it's fair to say it's a lower level of, mm-hmm. of treatment and care. Um, we, we generally, you know, in a perfect world, we uh, would love to refer all of our clients to FSP. Um, they do all qualify technically because they do have severe, uh, serious mental illness. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have the slots. Uh, you know, FSP in certain areas is at capacity. So, um, so we do refer to Triple R. My understanding from Triple R is that it's more outpatient. They don't necessarily do crisis calls. Um, they don't. They don't write holds. Um, so, so really, we're using them for our less acute clients. I would say. Um, if there is such a thing, uh, to, um, you know, they're, they're going there probably once a week uh, to do therapy and once a month for medication. And, and usually that's it for my understanding of triple R and from what I've seen. But if anyone has any different um, information or um, perspective, I would love to hear it. And then Eve has a question. She saw a presentation about um, diversion programs from San Diego and Orange County that are successful as well, but not enough spaces to accommodate the need. And she's asking if they were part of your system. Um, No, so we only, you know, so we're an LA County uh, program. We only work, we're only really allowed to work with people that are in the LA County jail. Um, This includes not being able to really work with people who are coming out of prison uh, or have been sentenced. We're kind of a pre-sentencing uh, diversion program, so um, there is no, no, there's no, there's no collaboration between us and any other counties, unfortunately. Um, and I see your other, your other uh, question about referring, referring clients and family to NAMI, uh, and maybe Tedman can respond to that if that ever happens. Yeah, when we do have some, um, some clients, we have some family members who are also kind of struggling on how to. Um, you know, work with and have relationships with um, family members who have a mental illness. So yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've used NAMI before, we share in terms of support groups and things like that. So that's usually not, uh, not an issue. Patricia just asked about 
a little more information about the difference between ICMS and ODR? Yeah, so, um, so ODR is uh, the county program. We're called the Office of Diversion and Reentry. Uh, ICMS is, the, is what we use for client treatment. So we, we're, we're um, contracting with uh, community providers uh, and we refer to them as ICMS, Intensive Case Management Services. We say it forms the backbone of client treatment within ODR. Great. And Latoya has a follow-up question. If someone's with Triple R and they need a higher level of care, can they be referred to FSP? Yes, absolutely. In theory, I mean, it happens in theory because uh, we do have limited access to FSP slots. Um, we have a lot more people who need linkages to mental health than, than uh, capacity, especially in like, you know, highly impacted service areas specifically six. Um, so yes, absolutely. If, if Triple R isn't cutting it, which a lot of times it doesn't, um, the, the request can be made or even a referral can be submitted by the Triple R provider or anyone really. Um, my, my, our challenge is not really having access to FSP slots in a lot of cases. So, um, but in theory, yes. And I have a quick question. Just going to a lot of impact meetings, they've talked about how a lot of lawyers and judges have extremely high expectations of what FSP can do and what ODR can do and how quickly they can do it. And a lot of providers spend a lot of time trying to educate lawyers about their limitations. Do you guys have any advice for minimizing the time spent doing that? Our ODR um, judges are fantastic. And they have um, what we usually do in terms of our progress reports at the very bottom. You know, the way that we separate our progress reports is we'll list like housing, mental health, substance abuse, probation, you see, in terms of how well they've been doing. And at the very bottom, we'll actually list recommendations that ICMS or FSP has made in regards to that client's care. Um, nine out of 10 times, our judges will listen to or will work with us in terms of those on, on what to do. So our relationship with um, with our with the judges and the public defenders, it, it really is we're trying to work with them hand on hand in terms of what's the best treatment for, for that particular client, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the and I and I imagine um, I imagine if we're talking about the three one of the three ODR dedicated courtrooms, I would imagine not so much communicating with the judge because those judges' full-time job is dealing with ODR. So, and they've been doing it for a while and they're really fantastic. So I would imagine in those scenarios, it's more about educating the, the public defenders about what's expected and, and what's realistic. Um, uh, advice on, on how to guide them. Um, I, I guess, I, <laughs> I, I'm always gonna say reach out to me for questions. I'm always happy to tell, you know, part of my job is also to communicate between um, uh, attorneys and clients and things like that, um, and ICMS providers. So I can manage those expectations um, if there are specific examples. Um, and beyond that, like PDs, public defenders, if anyone here knows public defenders, their job is to do whatever it takes to, to get the best outcome for a client. Um, so I, I imagine sometimes it's a personality. It's a per question of personality, uh, in which case I would use your skills in dealing with people with complicated personalities. 
and in, and in addition, a lot of our uh, other judges understand our like harm reduction model, so they're they're willing to kind of really work with with us and the FSP providers and having kind of re really realistic expectations and goals with with our clients' treatments. When we do have when we do have court dates in these courtrooms, there is an ODR person present. Um, and so if anything ever comes up between, you know, a misunderstanding between a judge or an, uh, an attorney about what FSP does or what it is, please come to us and we will, and we'll clarify that immediately. Jackie asks if you guys got a lot more clients um, as the county tried to reduce the jail population due to COVID-19 and if so, how you're handling that? Um, so yeah, currently handling it. Uh, the we started another program very quickly um, similar to ODR housing uh, where we are um, trying to make sure that the people with serious mental illness are not just released very quickly so yes we do have an effort um, we created I think about 200 beds that we're still in the process of filling for the people with uh, serious mental illness um, uh, and that is an ongoing thing. Uh, we, we hope to transition those people to ODR housing once, uh, at, the, at this point funding is really only, it's kind of temporary. So um, we're looking at about two to three months that we're serving those people, but same concept that people are not connected to ICMS, but all, uh, all housing sites that we've developed for this, for the effort do have uh, case manager, psychiatrist, uh, consult, things like that. Um, we have, we've also, um, we've worked really hard to make sure that, that our people, that either through rearrests or new people that are found newly suitable, um, are gotten out of jail really kind of in record time. So we're talking, we, we, we try to get them out in days. Uh, previous to that, we were, um, because of our housing being at capacity sometimes, and we're just constantly developing new housing and getting beds, um, our time between getting someone out of jail after being conditionally released was sometimes up to like four weeks, five weeks, which, you know, we feel is too long, but we're, just, we're very limited in terms of what we have access to. Um, in, the, in these cases, we're, we're, we've, we've figured out how to get them out immediately. So, so that, that is the answer to the COVID response. That is. Rosanna just wanted to clarify how you guys get referrals from which uh, avenues. Yeah. So, um, so all, all referrals really need to go through attorneys. So um, if you are in contact with attorneys, you can mention that they can refer to ODR. They should all know how to do that. Um, if there are other, you know, again, again, requirement is that a client needs to be currently incarcerated without having been sentenced or to have any disposition on their felony case. So, um, so, but if, you know, if anybody knows anyone and, and wants to reach out either to the attorney or me, sometimes, sometimes I'll get names from people either in jail or judges in other courtrooms or through a variety of different things. And I'll reach out to the attorney to, to, to explore whether or not a referral makes sense or is even possible or desired. Um, but so, yeah, so you could, uh, Rosanna, you can always reach out to me. I can look at people or you can talk to the attorney. Uh, I do get questions sometimes from FSP providers about, you know, criminal history, what's the charge, what is, what is the criminal history of this person. Um, I want to make it clear that it's not, that's not a piece of it that ODR tracks or um, holds on to, or sometimes we don't, you know, we go into the referral and 
looking at a, at a client, not necessarily looking at the criminal history. We leave that up to the judge. So, um, but we, we, do, um, we do indicate if a person is an RSO uh, or uh, a registered arsonist. Um, we, both of those things are not uh, disqualifiers for ODR. So we do take both of those um, client types, if, that, if you can say it like that. Uh, but in terms of criminal history, that's not that's not ever something that we we know to begin with or would hold on to. And those and those those two particular um, statuses are, are kind of important because it helps also helps determine their housing locations as well. Especially if they're an RSO, you know they can't you know be at a certain you know feet or yards from a school or, or things like that. So those are important things that we got to take into consideration, especially. A lot of our, our of our clients, they may move from one housing site to another, and every time that happens, you know, they have to re-register at their local precinct in terms of their um, sex offender status, basically. Jackie has another good one about what what's one thing that would make your job yeah. easier. <laughs> More it's, a, it's a very it's a good question. I'll yeah. uh, I'll, I, I'll jump in. I mean, it's the same thing that would make everyone on this call's job easier and it's it's more resources mm -hmm. um for me what would make my job easier is communication between different agencies uh, which is why part of my job is to try to facilitate communication when it's challenged um but you know the 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 we see things go really well when icms mm -hmm. and, and fsp are communicating effectively like ted was talking about you know it's when people do the best it's when we have fewer issues it's when clinicians are happier um so yeah that's my that's what i have to say about that. Uh, the biggest issues comes up when there's a lack of communication right and when one agency is not talking to the other agency and something might have happened at housing and then housing doesn't alert anybody that something has happened and then we suddenly find out they've been hospitalized you know uh, and a lot of those different things could have uh, there's been could have been a lot of interventions done before that person ended up rearrested or AWOL or hospitalized, that the whole team could have um, been part of to do those interventions to prevent a really bad outcome for that particular client. So I think, as Brian was mentioning, just increased you know, collaboration and communication. So if you're an FSP provider, please reach out to your ICMS provider and we'll do vice versa. Um, yeah. I mean, and the other thing, Jackie, is that uh fsp slots if they could be doubled <laughs> that would make our jobs really a lot easier um, but we understand that there's limitations there yeah. i mean i think i think we all agree i think we all agree like you know the best uh you know what's needed for this population of clients and i know we're all doing we're all working towards the same goal and so um yeah if we had more if we had a lot more money and a lot more providers that would be amazing yep Tina was asking about clients in FSP that could benefit from ODR and they get referred once they end up back in jail, go through the public defender and courts. Um, is there a way to refer someone into ODR from FSP without them actually being back in jail? So unfortunately there is not. Uh, we're designed as a, a program to reduce the jail population really, uh, specifically the mental health population in jail. Um, so unfortunately, our funding is not uh, doesn't doesn't allow for people to not be in jail to be referred. Unfortunately, 
And I just wanted to ask a clarifying question for physical health issues. Is that for the FSP team to um, kind of delegate? And does that also uh, align with for physical ho health hospitalizations? Yeah, that's something that I think is kind of a shared responsibility. And Brian and some of your FSP providers here can kind of correct me. Um, but I think that's more of a shared responsibility, especially it's something that, for example, if you have someone who has diabetes, you know, taking insulin shots, you know, it's something that I think all parties kind of kind of need to monitor and keep track of if the um, if they're going to the PCP appointments, if they're getting their insulin refills and things like that. So I think that's something that's more of a shared responsibility. Thank you. Rosanna asks if you help clients who are not uh, legal in the country. Um, yes, absolutely. We, you know, we, we, um, ODR, we do, we do, we kind of try to do, do anything that's necessary. So, you know, again, we, we work with RSOs, we work with registered arsonists, we work with, we try to work with anybody that we possibly can, including undocumented clients. And we got one more question. Eve was asking about um, pregnant women and moms in your program. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Eve, I may want um, some clarification on the question, but I'll just I'll, I'll start by saying so we do um, anyone who's arrested that is determined to be pregnant, you know, at the time of arrest or after whatever. Um, we do actually proactively work on those people to try to get them out. Um, so we meet with all of them and try to see if we can divert their cases. Um, people who become pregnant in the program, um, I assume maybe that's your question. Um, you know, we, we have pregnant women housing, we have family housing for people to bring their children to as part of our maternal health um, program. Um, so yeah, uh, does that answer your question? Or is there anything more specific you, you, you'd like to ask about that? Um, youth, uh, I see your question about youth. Uh, we have a, ODR has a whole separate youth diversion program that we are uh, working on. I am not at all involved in it, so I'm not the best one to speak to, um, but it's called youth diversion, YDD we call it. Um, and I believe, you know what, I'm not gonna say anything because I'm just gonna make something up. So um, in, our, in our ODR program, generally, you know, if, if you're under the age of 18, you would never make it to us anyway because you wouldn't be an adult or superior court. Um, so yeah. Eve, it's a good question about sober living. Um, so we're a harm reduction program. So I guess the, the short answer to that would be no. Um, we do have some housing sites that we've developed that we have intended to be more sobery living-y. Um, so yes, um, but you know, we're not, we're, people are not, being kicked out of the program for using necessarily. Um, Tedman, would you like to respond to the sober living question? Yeah, I mean, I think we've always been in a sober living facility, but all these uh, ERCs have their own rules in terms of um, having drug paraphernalia there, having uh, using things like that. Usually, if someone is caught, you know, I better move up just in case. Yeah. Usually, if someone is caught using or has some type of drug paraphernalia, you know, on them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll come out right there and then. We'll do like a behavioral contract. We'll work with them. 
uh, maybe get them to an inpatient facility or groups or things like that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they get kicked out. But most, I would say all of the housing facilities probably have some type of rules of not, you know, no drugs on, on premises, no using, no drug paraphernalia or anything like that. Latoya's question about uh, coming off of probation or parole. Um, the answer is yes, they remain in the ODR program. So, uh, so everybody, like I had mentioned, coming to ODR would, uh, you know, 99% of the time be on uh, three years probation or maybe a little less if the judge determines. Um, once that probation term is finished and they've completed those requirements, um, they do still remain in ODR uh, and we provide housing permanently um, and ICMS. In terms of FSP programs, um, that's I, I don't know the answer to that uh it's kind of it's probably more of a dmh question or an individual agency question we would hope that fsp would continue to to serve them for as long as they need it but I, what, what i imagine happens is at a certain point when someone has been stable for long enough i would imagine they're graduated down to a lower level of care um but um yeah in terms of in terms of like if fsp sticks around uh that's that's kind of more an individual agency or dmh question